Please go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. We have spent, if you've been around, then you know already, we've spent months and months discussing what it means to be a disciple, something that Cameron was talking about just a few minutes ago, um, or to put that another way, what it means to be an apprentice, someone who learns a set of teachings and then puts them into practice and adopts the lifestyle of their teacher and their master. Um, but an apprentice to whom? Disciples of Jesus have a predictably long list of things to say about their master, uh, what he said, what he did not say, to what he dedicated advocacy, what he denounced. Um, we talk about these things, we debate them, we argue about them. In fact, regardless of the reasons why or who is to blame, who speaks for Jesus with any amount of accuracy and who is guilty of blasphemous misrepresentation of Jesus. The world itself has often been divided by violence and hate and vitriol over the distinction between who Jesus is and who he is not. Some people say he was simply a moral teacher and at that he was quite nice. Um, to others, he's one God amongst many gods. Um, to others still, he is a liar or a fool or maybe he did not exist at all if you're like one, um, one person in the scholarly community is advocating for Jesus as a myth. Um, so if you and I set about the task of apprenticing this controversial and admittedly divisive rabbi, and if we actually aspire to do so well, what can we learn about Jesus from an eyewitness account of his life, his teachings, his work, and so on? With that said, let's read Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. <clears throat> this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, or, in the original language of the text, Biblios Geneseos Isu Christu Wihu Dawid Hio Abraham. Now, notice these, I realize that just sounded like a bunch of nonsense. These, these first two words carry uh, an immediate sort of familiarity, regardless of if you recognize the, the original language or not. Biblios is the Greek word for book, from which we get the word what? Bible, yeah, sure, that's obvious enough. The following word, geneseos, is here translated as genealogy, but interestingly, this isn't the word that we would ordinarily translate as genealogy. In fact, I suspect some of you might guess the ordinary translation of geneseos. Genesis, yeah. That is to say, another way of translating those two terms together would be the book of Genesis. Now, imagine for a moment that you're a Jewish disciple of Jesus in the first century. You get together with some other disciples, uh, probably in someone's house on a Sunday for church, and someone begins to read from this biography of Jesus, Matthew, what we now know to be chapter 1, or what we've now designated as chapter 1. Immediately, your attention would be seized. The phrase, Biblios Geneseos, of course, appears elsewhere. It appears in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, widely read in the first century, and then it was the term used to describe Genesis, the first book of the Hebrew Scriptures. This is a clear opportunity for what I like to call uh, source material enthusiasm. Certainly many, if not all of us, have gone to like some uh, genre movie, for example, accompanied by a diehard fan of whatever material from which the movie was adapted, uh, like a, a Marvel movie with a, a comic book enthusiast or uh, an art house flick with a friend who's read the novel three times or you know, going to a Star Wars movie with some man-child who wears like Chewbacca underwear or something like that. <laughs> The point is, for better or worse, that uh, admittedly they know something that we don't, right? They have an extended familiarity with the material. Now, a considerate human being does not clamor for your ignorance as an occasion to spoil the moment. 
uh, for you and sap your entertainment um, and saying things like, oh, well, in the book, you know, like while the movie's still happening or um, I was just so bummed that they changed this, you know, and you're like, I don't know what that is. Or, you know, if you would have watched the cartoon, this is something someone actually said, if you would have watched the cartoon, you'd have understood that that spaceship is called the ghost and that was why I was cheering when I saw it. I clapped to indicate that I knew it. Um, I clapped to indicate that. You know, these people are often a bummer, is what I'm getting at. And even so, if, if you've been that person to read the novel before you see the movie, or to stick with the comic book for years and years, or to study the backstory, then you know that feeling of seeing a movie and catching something that the other people may have missed, of feeling like, whoa, and then looking around a theater or whatever to observe, you know, a lack of recognition amongst the otherwise unknowing crowd. And we'll talk a bit more about source material enthusiasm before we end, but all that to say, imagine a Jewish disciple of Jesus, Jesus sitting next to a Gentile disciple of Jesus at church and someone reads from Matthew chapter 1, Biblios, Geneseos, you'd be like, whoa, and, and wanting so badly to explain to the person sitting next to you what just happened. Maybe they'd tell them afterward if they were a decent person. Uh, that, that, man, that was incredible. Matthew, the author of this biography that we read from, he seems to be saying that this story of, Genes or the story of Jesus is somehow like the story of Genesis. Um, it's about the recreation of the entire world. Two prominent scholars I read this week translate that first verse this way. The book of the new Genesis wrought by Jesus Christ. The story that we're about to read is more than the biographical account of one first century rabbi. Matthew, the biographer, infers from line number one that this is a very big story more than the details of a rabbi's life and teaching and execution as an enemy of the state. A biography, yes, but more than that. It's history, sure, but it's also more than that. This story is as old as the cosmos itself, and it reaches beyond the setting of its details into the farthest extension of unfolding human history. This is a story about God doing something about the mess that has been made of the world as a result of human rebellion and evil and injustice. This is a story about what has happened to the world and what God has done to rescue it and how he has crushed the evil snake from Genesis that leads the world astray. Indeed, in, in the story, you and I are actors. Our stories, the, the story of this city, the uh, the stories of our children's, the ultimate conclusion of the human story, the, the new beginning of the human story are all folded up into this ancient biography of one poor Jewish rabbi from the ancient Near East. And all this in a single line. This is the book of the new Genesis wrought by Jesus the Messiah. And what immediately follows are three distinct titles for this rabbi about whom Matthew writes. He says, the first is the Messiah. Depending on your translation, that line might read the Christ. Uh, the Greek word is Christos, and contrary to the popular understanding of the world, it's it, a word. It's not Jesus' last name. In fact, it's not a name at all. Christos is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. And the Mashiach was a central figure in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, whom we read about all throughout the Old Testament, in particular the Psalms and the prophets. It was a king-like character that was said to appear one day in the future to bring about God's healing and restoration and reign over Israel in particular, and in turn over the entire world. And in line number one, 
Matthew decides to pull no punches whatsoever, and he just announces from the, outside, uh, from the outset that Jesus of Nazareth is the Mashiach. Jesus is the long-awaited king of Israel, which gives way to Jesus' second title, Son of David. Uh, son, in this context, indicates that Jesus is a descendant of King David, or, you know, a great-great-great-great-grandson of David, which is more than a family tree. It's actually a moniker uh, for the Mashiach, based on God's promise in 2 Samuel, when he said, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Matthew is declaring that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. And finally, Jesus' third title is Son of Abraham, which here, again, is about Jesus' heritage connected to another great promise of God from Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Matthew understands this Jesus of Nazareth person to be the fulfillment of this promise as well. Jesus is more than the Messiah of Israel. Jesus is the Messiah of the entire world. All peoples of the world are going to be blessed through Israel in person, or in this case, Jesus of Nazareth specifically. So, in one seemingly simple but actually brilliant opening line, Matthew establishes this incredibly robust nature of everything that will follow in his biography. And it isn't this amazing. It just sounds like he's setting up a genealogy, and really he's saying something so entirely profound. And it may seem like we've b done a bit of detective work to get there, but for Matthew's audience, or for people in the know, it would have been exceedingly clear from that first sentence on. Jesus is the climax of Israel's story um, as told in the Hebrew scriptures. Genesis, Abraham, Israel. Jesus is the long-awaited answer to Israel's frustrating cliffhanger, you know, a story in search of an ending. Moreover, Jesus is the climax of the human story as well. Everything has been building to this story, to this man, and to this moment. Matthew, with this single, seemingly simple opening line, is saying, he's here. Uh, my son's Jesus Storybook Bible describes Matthew as opening like this. Everything was ready. The moment God had been waiting for was here at last. God was coming to help his people just as he promised in the beginning. All that in Matthew's opening phrase. But, of course, Matthew goes on with a genealogy. So, believe it or not, we're going to read the thing. Let's read verse 2 on. <clears throat> verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Oded, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So Matthew essentially retells Israel's story in three movements. Um, first, Abraham to David. 
the incredible story of Israel's beginning, which if you know the story begins with an infertile elderly couple to uh, a family, a tribe, 12 tribes, eventually a vast monarchy. And then Matthew goes on, verse 7. The names get weirder. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. You know, Cameron, I just realized that I sound exactly like Reverend Lovejoy. Every time the, that it's always a genealogy for some reason. <clears throat> um, so, sorry. That was the Simpsons fan moment between Cameron and I. You can, you can enjoy it too if you want. The next movement uh, that we just read covers King David on through the story of exile, which is civil war, a, a kingdom divided, idolatry, if you know the story, again and again with the idolatry, uh, injustice, and eventually Israel gets carried away from their home and into slavery under the oppressive rule of pagan Babylon. And then Matthew goes on with the, font, the third movement of Israel's story, verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shelatil, Shelatil the father of Zerubbabel. <laughs> oh, that one's great. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Elakim, Elakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elahud, Elahud, the father of Elazar, Elazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. The final movement in the genealogy covers the time of exile to the time of the Messiah, which is a dark timeline indeed, if you know the story. Israel has gone from the oppression of Babylon to the oppression of uh, Persia, and then eventually Greece, and eventually at, uh, the Roman Empire, where Matthew's story begins. Now, by that time, Israel is back in their land, but they're still in exile, in a sense, because they're under oppression. Um, they're without a king, and they're still waiting for the promised Messiah to arrive to make good on God's promise. And then finally, Matthew summarizes the whole thing with verse 17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. There's more on that 14 thing in a bit. But let's be honest. Most of us, you sit down to read Matthew and you skip the genealogy, right? Or at the very least, you skim the thing. I mean, what, you don't even know how to read these names in your head, let alone out loud like I just tried to do. Uh, why wouldn't you skip it? Who the heck are these people um, other than the overtly recognizable names? They're like, oh, Abraham. Yeah, I remember, remember that guy. Um, and what do we care? I'm sure it mattered to someone once upon a time, but to whom I can't imagine. Well, bear with me as I work to establish a bit of context. As, as strange as the notion may strike some of us, me, I'm one of them. In the ancient world, the tracing of one's ancestral background was an essential component in understanding one's identity. Um, such an idea is largely forgotten in modern America, obviously. I have no idea where the heck I came from. Um, my parents could not begin to describe the porter ancestry uh, of what nationality or what the story was. Who were the porters? Who cares? Who knows, right? We're here now. Um, but elsewhere in the world, people care very much. Throughout uh, New, New, New Zealand, for example, still, or Africa, or Iceland, even parts of England, the family tree is integral in uh, the individual's identity and their story. 
Heck, my, my friend, uh, my British friend Matt has his family crest tattooed on his arm. I was like, why? And he's like, oh, it's important. It's a thing, apparently. Um, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this, For many cultures, ancient and modern, and certainly in the Jewish world of Matthew's day, this genealogy was the equivalent of a roll of drums, a fanfare of trumpets, and a town crier calling for attention. Any first century Jew would find this family tree both impressive and compelling, like a great procession down a city street. We watch figures at the front and the ones in the middle, but all eyes are waiting for the one who comes in the position of greatest honor right at the end. So... To one end, what sort of bores you and I, if we're honest, uh, would compel the reader of the first century, apparently. But this is about much more than just entertainment value and readability. Bookmark Matthew 1 with your finger or your paper or whatever, and let's take a brief detour over to Matthew chapter 13, if you don't mind. Matthew chapter 13. Whatever your uh, Bible reading plan is, or lack thereof, I'd really encourage everyone here, if you're going to stick around for this whole Matthew thing, to make space this week to read through the entire gospel start to finish, um, which will create a wonderful big picture of the work that we have ahead of us. That's just four chapters a day. Every one of you can absolutely do that if you want to do it. Remember, you actually decide what you spend your time on. Did you know that? Um, if you do, take a ticket on yourself to read Matthew. You'll eventually arrive at chapter 13 around day four or so if you do it uh, spread out equally, right in the middle of the biography. Here, there's an allusion to the author himself. Let's read Matthew 13, verse 52. He, Jesus, said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law, my Bible says teacher of the law, other translations uh, render the term scribe. A scribe was an expert in the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, he said to them, therefore, therefore, every teacher of the law or scribe um, has become, who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven or an apprentice of Jesus, his way of life, his set of teachings, is like the owner of a house who brings out his storeroom, new treasures as well as old. When you hear that phrase, uh, owner of a house, don't think of like a, a homeowner in the modern sense. Here, Jesus is referring to a wealthy patriarch with an estate that would house like his immediate family, uh, his extended family, as well as his business and his servants. So, so a rich person, a very wealthy person. And these words, of course, they come from Jesus. But here, Matthew documents them as something of a subtle acknowledgement of himself, the author of the biography. In his own literary way, Matthew's saying, this is who I am. I am the scribe. If we assume Matthew, the author, is also Matthew the apostle, who's called Levi elsewhere, he would have been uh, literate and educated as a tax collector for the Roman Empire. And of course, his story becomes something much bigger than that. He becomes Matthew of the Twelve, or Matthew the Apprentice of Jesus. But here he's saying, I'm like that scribe. I'm bringing out the treasures of a wealthy home, the new treasures and the old ones. And that is the work of a scribe, of someone who writes this down. Meaning, there are old treasures in Matthew, the, the old in the sense of familiarity. The story passed on through the Hebrew scriptures and passed on via oral tradition leading up to the time of writing Matthew, via you know, the story of Jesus' birth and his death and his resurrection. But he's saying there's more here as well. There are new things, things that you have not heard yet. 
And if you've spent time in the church, you may well know the major touchdown points of Matthew. Maybe you've read it in detail. Maybe you've consulted a commentary or you've heard sermons, not unlike this one. But my promise is that there are a myriad of new treasures here as well. There are things that you and I don't know. There are angles that, have, uh, that we've never examined and possibilities that we've yet to explore. And the task that we're going to set about at Van City with our teaching team in collaboration with the teaching team, with uh, our friends at Bridgetown Church, is to take you and I beneath the surface of Matthew, beneath the old layer of familiarity, into an intricate system of endlessly detailed and altogether new treasure as well. That's the idea anyway. We will go there together, and we go there that we might be captured by and invigorated with a new and broader vision of who Jesus is and why we choose to apprentice him in the first place. Now, why am I suddenly going on about old and new treasures? Let's now turn back to Matthew 1 and unpack that juxtaposition of the old and new at work even in the genealogy of Jesus. Um, it's about to get kind of nerdy for a few minutes. Are you guys still there? Heather, feel all right? Is the gum helping? Thank you. Did you bring enough to share with everyone, all that stuff? I realize that would sound kind of like a butthead tonight. I made this cracks about what you do with your time. Now I'm picking on I'm sorry, Heather. Will you forgive me? Thanks. That was easy. I would like to see that same level of forgiveness exemplified in perpetuity. <laughs> and uh, as we are friends and, you know, we're, we're in a community together, Heather and I. I don't have to worry about Tab, Heather's husband. He's readily forgiving in nature. <laughs> Dang it. That sounded really butthead-like too. <laughs> I just meant to celebrate Tab, and it came out as an insult to you. Thanks, Mike's doing this. <laughs> all right. All that to say, it's getting nerdy. Hang in there. We're en route to somewhere significant. Please, as best as you can, stay, stay focused. Let's do this thing. Let's talk a bit more about the old treasures. Um, of course, to open Matthew, to set to work on chapter 1, the modern reader, we obviously talked about this already, sees little more than a genealogy and maybe a boring one at that, if we're honest. A boring family tree is what it amounts to. But Matthew's concern is for something other than just obsessive detail. He means to, from the outset, establish Jesus as the long-awaited king of Israel. He's saying that Jesus is the Messiah of the Hebrew Scriptures. And it doesn't take a historian to understand why Matthew would go to such trouble to do so. As the author of the biography of Jesus, one of four, Matthew is burdened with the task of explaining how one peasant rabbi from this obscure podunk town up north, not from Jerusalem, the holy city, is the long-awaited king of Israel that we've been reading about all the way through the Old Testament. So to do so, Matthew arms himself with Jesus' ancestry, his royal bloodline reaching all the way back to King David. But Matthew is up to something more than just reaching backward into the story of God. In fact, one layer beneath the simple ancestry there lays a storehouse of subversive subtlety. So to begin, Matthew opts to include women in Jesus' family tree. And this may strike you and I as unspectacular in detail, but in the patriarchal culture of the first century, uh, infinitely more oppressive to women than our modern culture, which is often still saddeningly, saddeningly oppressive to women, the idea of including women in a genealogy was rare at, at best, especially amongst a royal bloodline. But in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, four women show up, five if you count Mary, and things get weirder. Sexist a culture, though it may have been, there were certainly noteworthy women in the Jewish tradition. There were uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, if you know the story, or Rebecca, Rachel, uh, you know, Leah, essentially the mothers of Israel, the matriarchs 
of the story. And none of them cameo in Jesus' family tree. Instead, we get Rahab, who is a Canaanite or a pagan, not of God's people, uh, a prostitute. Um, in the story, she becomes a traitor to her own people. She sells them out. So that's weird that she would show up. Uh, next, we get Tamar, who's another pagan. In Genesis 28, Tamar disguises herself as a hooker and seduces her own father-in-law so that she can get pregnant. So, what? <laughs> Why? Why the... Okay, really? Just to shake things up or what? It's not that boring yet. Hold on. So that's weird. She shows up. Um, then comes Ruth, a Moabite. Ruth's glamorous backstory is that she herself was born of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his own daughter. And because of that, Ruth was hated by the Jewish people. And finally, we get the wife of Uriah. Are there any Old Testament enthusiasts who happen to know? Remember the wife of Uriah? Yeah, that's right. That's you. Oh, that's the most subtle hand raise in the world. <laughs> Barely flicked his hand like this. Um, Bathsheba, the subject of David's great failure, the woman with whom he committed adultery and subsequently murder. Um, and Matthew includes these four women. Two or three of them uh, were not even Jewish at all, and each of them were famously associated with some tragic, sinful backstory as a result of their own guilt or someone else's. And these women are included in Jesus' royal bloodline. With naughty women. Right? Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Well, with naughty stories and, you know, puffed up around them, some cases them, some cases other people. Um, this is Matthew's way of saying that the story of Jesus is an unexpected sort of story. It includes the least likely or the people that you shouldn't think make the list. Then, Matthew has actually accomplished a few very subtle deviations from Jesus' actual genealogy. Bear with me. Things are about to uh, reach Stanley Kubrick levels of layered sophistication. It still makes sense. Um, in verse 8, Matthew includes someone called Asa, and in verse 10, someone called Amon, both of whom were famously wicked kings of Israel. It's part of the royal bloodline. But fascinatingly, in Greek... Both names have been slightly altered in the original language. Matthew added a single Greek letter to make Asa, Asaph. Um, Asaph authored many of the Psalms. He was a worship leader who prophesied in particular about a coming Messiah. The next name, or uh, to the name Amon, Matthew's made a small edit by exchanging the last letter so that the name actually reads Amos in Greek, and Amos was a Hebrew prophet who prophesied about the coming Messiah. I realize that may seem like a wild fan theory, but scholars agree that this sly exchange of Greek characters could by no means be an accident. Matthew is presenting a family tree that's both accurate, but that also nods to Hebrew prophets of old, of the Hebrew scriptures, to say that Jesus is the, the one that the psalmist wrote about and sang about, the one that the, the prophets prophesied about. He is the subject of the psalms and the subject of the prophecies of both Asaph and Amos. That's not all. Matthew has woven even more veiled density into Jesus' ancestry. You guys still with me so far? That's not so bad yet. Um, uh, you've got room in your heads for another layer of thing. When, when Matthew summarizes genealogy, he writes this. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So what the heck is up with the 14? Why, why are we mentioning 14 on and on? This is an ancient literary device called a gematria, in which numbers are assigned a symbolic value. Now, 
In the Hebrew language, there are no numbers, uh, but each letter can double as a number. So imagine, for example, if in the English alphabet, A was also one and B was also two. You get the idea. In Hebrew, the name of King David was made up of three Hebrew letters. There was Dalet, which has a numerical value of four. Vav, which has a numerical value of six. And Dalet, again, which for all you math enthusiasts brings the sum of David's name to what? Fourteen. Way to go. Better than me at math. Fourteen is a symbolic number or a gematria for King David. Seems zany to you and I, but historians agree that Jewish readers would know this well enough, which seems consistent. After all, David's name appears at both the beginning and the end of the list, as well as in the middle of the list in which he appears as number 14. If you had to guess, that would be the easy answer, 14. Matthew is telling his readers that Jesus is the long-awaited descendant of David, the long-awaited Messiah and King, and the intricacy goes on. In Matthew's world, there was a famous prophecy featured in the Old Testament book of Daniel in which the exile of Israel was said to last for 77s, or to put another way, 70 weeks, according to some translations. Look at this uh, from Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. It goes on. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understand this. From the time the world goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, uh, the, Mashiach, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench but in times of trouble of course the number seven uh, if you know anything about the old testament features heavily throughout the hebrew scriptures the sabbath is the seventh day of the week uh, every seventh year was a sabbatical year and every seven times seven years or 49 years was something called a year of jubilee in which slaves were granted freedom and all land was given back to its original owners hang in there this is worth the work trust me now in Daniel, we read about 77s, which isn't a literal number per se. Daniel is saying that sometime in the distant future, uh, a Messiah will arrive. And the Messiah will end the exile of Israel. He will usher in an unprecedented era of freedom, of healing, and renewal. Now, in the first century, the time of Matthew's writing, this prophecy was common knowledge to the Jewish people. And one reason was that because the Jewish people of the first century were 490 years removed from Daniel's prophecy, a more literal understanding of 77s. And Matthew knows that and is exploiting it. Matthew's saying to his Jewish readers, look, not only are we about 490 years from Daniel's prophecy, his 77s, were also three stages of 14 generations from Daniel's prophecy, or six sevens, meaning that Jesus' birth marks the seventh seven. Matthew is using an incredible amount of numerical symbology to say something very simple. The greatest jubilee of all has finally arrived. The long-awaited anointed one is here. This is is the year of celebration. And don't check out just yet because there's one more use of 14. It's arguably the best of them all. 
If you add up the list of the last group of kings in Matthew's genealogy, you arrive with a mysterious sum of 13 rather than 14. So the reader might wonder, oh, has Matthew contradicted himself? But look closer. The genealogy ends with this final entry in verse 16. He writes, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Joseph is listed here as the husband of Mary. Uh, why on earth is that his title? Every other patriarch down the list is listed as the father of. Why does it not read Joseph, the father of Jesus? It's, if Joseph isn't the father, who is the missing 14th king, right? Um, Bible nerd or not, that's pretty freaking cool, I think. Um, from the very beginning, with what appears on the surface as an ordinary lineage, Matthew is saying, yes, Jesus is the promised king. We can see that from his royal ancestry, and he's more than that. Um, he's even more than we could have guessed. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And this is just the opening of the book. <laughs> this is just Jesus' family lineage. Do you see the incredible level of sophistication in Matthew's writing, old treasures and new treasures. Now, if you haven't posed the obvious complication in your head at this point, you will eventually as we go through Matthew, um, which is this. Without a tremendous amount of digging, I would have, uh, I'm speaking for myself per se, I would have never unearthed those treasures on my own. So why read Matthew's book at all if we can't hope to even fathom what he's up to with just a simple surface reading? Um, this is why we began this evening with a brief uh, word on source material enthusiasm. I think this is a helpful metaphor in understanding the literary density of Matthew. I've mentioned once or twice, if you've been around here, that I am a lover of the movies. I like to watch the movies, guys, like many of you, I'm sure. In 1992, uh, I read my first novel, my first like, grown-up novel, uh, at the age of nine. It was uh, Michael Crichton's seminal book, Jurassic Park. The following year, I would see that film adaptation of Crichton's novel seven times in the theaters. Um, to this day, it remains my all-time favorite movie, the moment in my life when the transporting power of filmmaking was made personal and real in my 10-year-old brain. It did something. Um, now, Michael Crichton, who co-wrote the film screenplay with David Kep, understood that a film is not a novel, and so he worked to explore his remarkably complex themes of chaos theory and the arrogance of man in brilliant, seemingly insignificant narrative moments. In fact, get this, I've prepared such a moment um, for you guys tonight, but I refuse to employ it unless everyone here has already seen Jurassic Park, such as my disdain for spoilers and my respect for movies. I realize the odds are someone in here hasn't seen Jurassic Park, so by a show of hands, if you have not seen Jurassic Park, put your hand in the air. You can be that person. You haven't seen? You have read the book? Okay, well then, has anyone else not seen? Lenares, you do not care about movies at all. So you have just tremendous disrespect for movies. She goes on and on about how much she hates them. It's your chance now to say that you haven't seen it, and I will respectfully move on, other than Lenares, and you've read the novel, so you're familiar with the themes. You're not just lying because you want to hear the example, are you? Really? Heather, have you seen Jurassic Park? Okay, great. Can, do you, Mike, do you believe them? He was like, there's no way. Someone here hasn't seen it. All right, let's go with it, Ray. Check this out. 
There's no sound, but this is a scene near the first act of the movie in which uh, Dr. Grant, Ellie Sattler, John Hammond, uh, Donald Gennaro, and Ian Malcolm are descending to the island of Isla Nublar uh, to see a park that they don't know about at all. They've come to give their endorsement. Now, Dr. Grant, in the turbulence, cannot seem to uh, buckle his safety harness because he has two female um, couplers and the, everyone else in the helicopter is completely able to buckle up, and so they descend in comfort while he continues to struggle with the safety belt, everyone looking him on and trying to tell him how to help. Eventually, he just ties them together, and he nods knowingly, Sam Neill being awesome. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's the end of the scene. In the moment, it plays like, hey, that was pretty fun. Uh, you can kill that slide now, right? It'll just loop forever. Um, in the moment, it plays like, hey, that was pretty funny, you know, he couldn't buckle his seatbelt. Uh, but Michael Crichton understood that um, the themes of chaos that he explores, the, the intricate or um, inherent lack of predictability in a complex system, uh, you can't actually explore that too much in a two-hour popcorn movie made by a blockbuster studio. So he had to work in these themes of foreshadowing to talk about how what later Ian Malcolm describes as life finding a way. Of course, you've all apparently seen Jurassic Park so that you know that even though all the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park have been denied a chromosome so that they're all inherently female, eventually they start breeding anyway, right? And uh, Dr. Grant discovers this egg and he says, wow, Malcolm was right, life found a way. The females, because of they used frog DNA, some West African frogs can spontaneously change sex from male to female in a single sex environment, right? Um, <laughs> life found a way. Now, this was foreshadowed brilliantly earlier in the movie when Dr. Grant has two female parts of a seatbelt and no way to connect them at all. So he's not going to be able to buckle up. So he just ties them together and he works out the problem really easily. Brilliant foreshadowing on Michael Crichton's part. Now, if you've read Jurassic Park, the novel, this gets described in a little more detail and you would sit there and not, even me as like a, you know, uh, a butthead 10-year-old. It was my 10th birthday. I was like, yeah, I knew that. I read that. <laughs> um, most of my friends had already ran out of the theater. They were so terrified of the opening scene. Uh, so if you'd read the book, you'd have this tremendous amount of appreciation for that. If you hadn't read the book, you'd probably love the scene just as well because it's a great scene and it plays out really funnily and makes perfect sense. The novel, um, Jurassic Park, was an international bestseller. Most people familiar with what became a franchise at this point know Jurassic Park by the original film. In fact, many authentic lovers of Jurassic Park, the movie, have not read a single page of its source material, and that's absolutely fine. If they had, the experience would draw out a robust new dimension uh, for this powerfully imaginative story about a theme park populated with genetically recreated dinosaurs. But even without the novel, the power of the story rings true on the screen. The novel is unnecessary in the work of understanding and appreciating the movie. But the novel indeed locks the unlocks the incredible depth of the narrative. This, I think, is kind of what Matthew's gospel is like. You can read it on a surface level and completely appreciate, understand, and fathom every important bit of information that Matthew wants you to know about Jesus, the story of Israel, about how he's come to rescue the world. And if you'd like, you can dive into the storehouse and know even more, an infinitely intricate depth of knowledge drawn out from the health of the wealthy patriarch, old treasures and new ones. Now to end tonight, I want to set a precedent for a motif that will recur throughout the series on Matthew's Gospel in which we sort of pose the question of the story's significance both in the original setting, which we've done in detail, the first century, before we ask what the story means for us today. In other words, for tonight's purposes, what in the world does this ancient genealogy have to do with our apprenticeship to Jesus today? 
Well, to begin, we learn from this long and admittedly tedious list of names that Jesus' story is also our story. After all, Jesus is the climax of Israel's long and tragic narrative. When we accept Jesus' invitation to become his apprentices, we are adopted into God's family. We become children of Abraham. We become actors in Israel's story, and their story becomes our story. And we as human beings live by stories, whether we want to or not. Sociologists argue that all the great isms of the Western world, you know, like materialism and minimalism and capitalism, socialism, militarism, pacifism, nihilism, whatever, they're all stories which we understand, uh, which we use to understand ourselves and the world. It's how we process the data of life, so to speak. And this is why spiritual formation or the process of the apprentice becoming more like the teacher is about deliberately rejecting the many stories in favor of one particular story. Meaning we reject the story of more security and more safety equals a better life and we embrace instead the story of giving your life away equals a better life. We reject the story of kill or be killed, fight back, militarism, in favor of the story of love your enemies, bless them, bless and do not curse, never repay evil for evil. Matthew connects his story to the story of Jesus, the story of the whole world, and he says this story, the Jesus story, is the true story. This is the actual way to understand yourself and the world around you. When we understand that, we can enjoy what Jesus calls life to the fullest. Of course, we would more often than not like to invite Jesus into our story. And if he can find space in there, that's great. You know, I'm, I'm doing the safety and security thing. Uh, Jesus, feel free to join me in here if you want some of the American dream. Otherwise, you're going to have to find space on the outskirts. Um, so that's one dimension. The second thing for us tonight is that this incredible fact that God purposefully includes unlikely can uh, candidates in his story. Uh, and you can be one of them. You and I can be one of them. I mean, geez, there's, there's prostitutes, there's incestuous lovers, there's wicked kings, and on down the list it goes. The royal lineage, uh, lineage of the anointed king of Israel, the Messiah. This story isn't meant for the people of Israel in a vacuum. It isn't meant for men only, or for royalty only, or for the morally upright alone. It includes pagans, it includes broken men and women, it includes the tragic, the flawed, the unlikeliest of candidates. Whatever ugliness lurks in the shadow of your story, God can and will graft you in to that story. He gives a royal seat to the rejects of society. And just as incredible, God uses the ugliness of our stories to do good in his story. Incest, adultery, war, slavery, death, evil. God doesn't craft those things, but he turns them on their heads and he uses them to do good in his story. God is so subversive that way, which is extraordinary news for you and I, for those of us who feel as though their personal history reads like a, a who's who of human failure and stupidity. Because God uses that. And finally, to end, the story isn't completely arbitrary. It didn't just happen this way. God was involved. Um, God is not a puppet master. He does not pull all the strings. He doesn't control every aspect of the unfolding human story. There are other factors involved. There are our freedoms, uh, the freedoms of spiritual beings, the chaos of nature and circumstance. But that does not mean that God is detached 
from the story. No, the story of Scripture is, is a story of a God who is involved, who steps in, who works in and with our story. He leads, he guides, he works with mistakes, he starts over, he's faithful, he's determined, and he does that for you and I as well. This is often easier to see in retrospect, uh, at least in my experience and the experience of folks I've often talked to, uh, looking backward and then observing uh, God's involvement in our own lives when it was initially neglected. But this story reminds us that God is involved now, um, that he will be involved tomorrow. Years down the road, he will continue to guide and to lead and to step in and to correct and to redeem and to renew again and again and again. This is more than a list of names. This is actually an invitation into the story of Jesus. Is that not amazing? Is that not beautiful? For all of us, in the messes that we've made of our circumstances and lives, if you're anything like me, the tragedy that has besieged and broken us, the horrible things that we've done or that have been done to us, you and me, the, the God of endless, incredible compassion, the God who so loves the world invites you and I to join him in the story of Jesus. It's our story now as well. And he will take these endless tangles of who you are and where you've been and he will unknot your pain and brokenness that he might make those dark cords beautiful. And more than that, he will weave them into the very story of God. Only God does that. And only in Jesus is it done at all. To end this evening, um, I thought it might be fitting for us to just spend some time listening to God's Spirit and asking where are those spaces in our lives that we've sort of given up hope on our story being turned on its head, where we've given up hope that our story can be redeemed at all, or where we've neglected to even draw our attention for hope of redemption and our story being made God's story. So if you guys wouldn't mind, would you just go ahead and clear off your lap, stand up with me. Um, I'm just going to take a minute to invite God's Spirit to come and to speak, and then we'll just spend a couple of minutes listening before we you know, sing more songs together.